In Acts chapter 17, which occurs during the second missionary journey of Paul, he makes his way to a city called Thessalonica. And there he goes in to the synagogue per his custom, and he begins reasoning with them from the scriptures about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now there in Thessalonica, a few people are interested, but the bulk of them immediately stonewall. They are not about to let his teaching from the Bible confront their tradition, and so they form a mob, start a riot, and run him out of town. He makes his way up to a town called Berea. And there he repeats his pattern. He goes into the synagogue and begins teaching them from the scriptures who Jesus is and what he has done. But there the reaction is different. There in Berea the people are people of the book. And so instead of stonewalling, their response is to open their Bible and look earnestly. It says they searched the scriptures daily. Why? To see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, in honor of that Berean spirit, that commitment to relying upon the Word of God and by testing all things with the Word of God, you can find churches across the denominational spectrum that take the name Berean for themselves to commemorate that. Today, when I stepped up to the pulpit, I asked you to open your Bible. And I asked you to read with me 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. We do that same thing every week. And in churches around the world today, the pastor will stand up and invite you to turn in your Bible and read along the passage of the day, whatever it may be in that church. Now, that practice is so common, we don't give it a second thought. But it is a direct result of the Reformation. Without the Reformation, there would be no Bible in your hand. At least not a Bible you could read. Now, the central concern of the Reformation was justification. That is, how can I get right with God? That was the driving concern of the Reformation. How can I have peace with God? It's the burning question that every person must answer. But of course, in order to address the question, in order to answer the question, we have to have a reliable and authoritative source from which we can get the answer. And the Reformation put Scripture on the front burner and asserted that it is the Word of God that is our sole, final authority in all matters of faith and practice. In fact, the Reformation posited the notion and reasserted the claim that it is Scripture alone that gets to devise doctrine. The church does not get to conjure up articles of faith. The church's role is to explain and teach what is in the Bible. And the Bible's role is to be the source of revelation and then to be the final arbiter in the event of any dispute. The Bible is the sole final authority. 
And because the Bible is the final authority, and because it is God's word to mankind, and because God expects obedience from every person, that means the Bible then should be accessible to every person and able to be understood by the masses. And this seems like common sense, right? It seems like common sense. But the forces of Satan throughout history have always sought to destroy or minimize the importance of God's word. Whether it was by the physical destruction of books or the obscuring of the content by a change of language or by simply forbidding it, the forces of Satan want you to not know the Bible. So just a hint that you might be on the wrong side is if you're on the side that doesn't want people to have the Bible. The Bible is power. As we discussed last week, uh, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517, it took several months before the church authorities responded to him. At first, they didn't take him seriously. When the Catholic authorities first heard about Luther's protest, they literally dismissed him as a drunken German who had come to his senses when he sobered up. But Luther kept writing. Luther kept preaching. And so in 1518... Almost, almost a year after Luther posted his theses, he was ordered to come down to the town of Augsburg, Germany, where he would be confronted by an authority in the church, a cardinal. A cardinal is a bishop who's handpicked by the pope to appoint other bishops. He's a bigwig. And this guy was Cardinal Cayetan, a, a, a brilliant scholar. And Luther is called to come in, and he's going to be told... Stop what you're doing. Luther comes in before this cardinal, and he is told, recant. And Luther says, why? And he proceeds to make a biblical case defending what he's been saying against all these spiritual abuses, specifically the sale of indulgences. He makes a thoroughly biblical case. And then he says, show me where I'm wrong. Fair question. Cardinal Cayetan gets his secretary. His secretary brings him the volume of the canon law. He opens it to the right place. The Pope has the authority to authorize the sale of indulgences. Cardinal Cayetan didn't respond to a single argument of Luther's. He didn't say, oh, you have your verses, I have mine. He didn't say, you know what, you're misinterpreting those passages. Let's reason together. No, Cayetan didn't even feel the need to address the arguments. Why? Because canon law said the Pope has the authority to authorize the sale of indulgences. So, that was the end of the matter. Of course, Luther did not recant. And instead, in 1519, a few months later, he has a debate with the renowned theologian, uh, John Eck at Leipzig. Now, this is where things get really heated. 
Up to this point, Luther has operated with the understanding that things have just gone awry, but you know what? If, if, if someone just points out the errors, then things will change. And so at Leipzig, he continually wants to address matters of justification and faith and works. He wants to talk about all these issues, but John Eck knows his game, and he keeps bringing everything back to the authority of the Pope, the authority of the councils, the authority of the church to establish doctrine. And he brings Luther to the point where he has to acknowledge that the Pope and the councils are not the authority in the church. The word of God is the authority. And the word of God sits in judgment over any ecclesiastical authority, not vice versa. And so from that time on, Luther understood that within the system of the church, there was basically a built-in self-insulating system to protect the church from the claims of the Bible. Because whenever the claims of the Bible butt up against what they're doing, they just conjure up a piece of tradition that justifies it. So, the Catholic Church by this time had developed a highly sophisticated notion of authority. That revelation from God comes in two sources. Scripture and their sacred tradition. And to this day, the Catholic catechism, the official dogma of the church, is that both Scripture and tradition are to be received and obeyed with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And furthermore... The only legitimate interpreter of scripture and tradition is the magisterium. That is the pope and the bishops who are in communion with him. And so whenever there's a council or whenever the pope speaks ex cathedra, like he did in 1950 where he made the assumption of Mary, which is the notion that Mary got to go to heaven bodily like Elijah and Enoch, uh, that was made a, a matter of faith in 1950. So whenever that happens, it becomes binding authoritative teaching of the church that you must believe. And the Reformation, of course, said, no way. The Bible is our authority. The Bible is what comes from God. The Bible is what we must put our confidence in. The Catholic Church taught that the church came first and gave the people the Bible. That's what they taught. That's what they teach. That the church gives you the Bible. So the church is inherently in a position over Scripture. The Reformation said, no. God's creative word comes first. And it is the word of God that creates the church. In a very real sense, the church is a creature of the word. As such, the church's job is to receive and submit to the word. And we are utterly dependent upon it. A an entirely different focus. Now, since then, in the 500 years since the Reformation, there have been massive shifts in, in epistemology. At the time, the, the Roman Catholic Church was the authority on interpreting truth claims. That's not the way it is anymore. 
okay? They've had so many shifts in thought, and while it's intriguing to me to talk about how the Enlightenment affected thoughts and how Romanticism and all that stuff, needless to say, now in the era of postmodernity, we live in the era of the autonomous self, where each individual decides what is true. And any truth claim presented by an organization is mere truthiness. The notion that God has spoken authoritatively into history, revealing himself, declaring truth, and that this revelation is binding on all people at all times, in all places, regardless of how we feel about it, that's offensive. That's arrogant. That is the culture in which we find ourselves. But yet, in the face of postmodern confusion and chaos, we in the Reformed, in the Protestant world, still maintain God has spoken. The only way we can know about God is because God has revealed himself to us. If God had not revealed himself to us, he would be utterly unknown. But he spoke, and he acted, and he revealed. So we can know not only who God is, we can know what our problem is. We can understand now why we have this incessant yearning for meaning. Viktor Frankl may have identified the problem, but he can't identify the cure. God's word is revelation that he has made known to us. Now, the God, uh, or God's word is not just cold, dead letters. We oftentimes think it's just a book. You know, on your bookshelf, you may have a, a few Tom Clancy books. You may have a couple, you know, maybe you'll admit to it, having a couple Stephen King novels or something. And then you got, you know, the Bible, right? Just a book. No! The word of God is not just cold, dead letters. On the contrary, this is the only book you will ever encounter that's living and active, that is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God, the sacred scriptures that we have been given, humbles the proud. It revives the soul when you are downcast. Who has not, when they are, are, are despairing, who has not read the Psalms and felt themselves lifted up? The Word of God is attended by the Spirit. We learn this in Romans 10. And the Spirit attends the Word of God so that when the Word is read or preached, the Spirit attends it to create faith and to nourish and encourage and build up faith. The Word of God, we are told in Ephesians 6, is the sword of the Spirit. We are engaged in a great spiritual war. And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is our only offensive weapon. And we're told in Hebrews 4 that this sword, this sword of the Spirit, is sharper than any sword. And how it is so sharp and so precise that it, that it divides even the seemingly undivisible. It, it's able to distinguish between soul and spirit. We're told in 
1 Corinthians or, ten, or uh, 2 Corinthians 10:4 that our weapon of war is able to destroy strongholds because of its supernatural power. This is why the Reformation and every revival or renewal movement in the history of the church has come on the heels of a recovery of the Word of God. Scripture is powerful. And it changes lives. That war is still going on. You and me, we're surrounded by it. We're engaged in it daily. And if you watch those silly movies, you think that spiritual warfare is, is waged with, with, with incantations and rituals. You know, you know you've seen Exorcist. And, and, and the priest is battling the devil with, you know, chanting and uh, groaning and strainings of the faith. You know, what are you straining? You know, are you, are you, do you have a blockage or something? We learn from our Lord's example that you wage war against the devil with the thunderous, it is written. Satan is defeated with the word of God. That is our weapon. Those rules of engagement haven't changed. Which is why in Psalm 1, the first psalm in the section known as the wisdom literature, it begins by highlighting and describing the blessed person, the righteous person. The unrighteous per person is characterized by, by, by accepting the counsel of the wicked. Or specifically, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So the righteous person, the blessed person, is the one who's meditating on God's word day and night. But you won't meditate on it day and night if it's not your delight. And unfortunately, too many Christians have a ho-hum mindset about their Bible. If they read it at all, it's only when they come to church or they'll, out of a sense of duty, just so they can say they did it, they'll conduct a devotional act activity, they'll read a, a ditty in it, or maybe they'll read a little whatever. But I don't want that for you. I want the Word of God to be your delight so that you will see and savor the risen Christ who's revealed. The point of Scripture is to believe in His name and for that belief to turn into a searing, white-hot flame of worship. The Word of God reveals to us the glory of God. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has his vision, and he, and he is transported to the throne of God, and the angels are talking to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty! The earth is full of the glory of God. But how often do you see it? We go around oblivious to the glory of God, don't we? But it's the word of God that gives us the eyes, that gives us the lens to discern and see the glory of God at work around us. I'd suggest 
that much like our prayer life, our prayer life is often weak and inept, and we don't have much because we don't ask for much. Likewise, our Bible reading life is so blasé and unimpressive because we don't expect much from it. Oh, that I, I pray. I wish that our attitude would be like that of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18. Write it down. Psalm 119, verse 18. And, and, and that this would be your prayer. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The Bible is a supernatural book. It is foolishness to the natural mind. You will only behold wondrous things if you get the eyes to see it from the Lord. And we must earnestly strive for that. Wondrous things. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things. This isn't written from some new Christian. You know how when someone comes to the Lord, like, like, like some of those guys at RUF, and, and, I, and for the first few months, several years maybe, they're going to be excited about everything's new and fresh. Oh, it's wonderful. But after you've read the Bible a, a few times, and you spent your life in the church, you think you know it all. I mean, you may not say that, but you know the main stories, the main themes, and, and, and nothing in the Bible really impresses you. You may learn a fact that you didn't know before, but wondrous things. This was not written by a new Christian. It was written by someone who was meditating on God's word all day, who was reflecting on God's precepts all night, who was living his life saturated in the word, and he still says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. We are called to have the same mindset as Christ. And you will not find someone with a higher view of the Bible than Jesus. We learn in Matthew 5.17 that he has what we would call a jot and tittle understanding of the Old Testament. Namely, every single little scribal mark matters. Not just the overarching story. The words the verb forms, the tenses, the subject-predicate connections, they all matter. Jesus had great confidence in his Bible. And we are called to the same. Now, I want you to worship. And I want you to see and savor your Savior in the Scriptures. How's that for alliteration? And so to aid you in that, I want to share four properties of Scripture that it alone has as our authority. First, Scripture is necessary. Second, Scripture is sufficient. Third, Scripture is final. And fourth, Scripture is clear. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is necessary. Scripture is final. And Scripture is clear. In John 17, 17, in his High priestly prayer, his last big thing he does before they leave the upper room to go to Gethsemane, Jesus prays regarding his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is not just true 
in the same sense that the proposition one plus one equals two is true. Okay, God's word is truth itself. It is the truth by which all other truth claims are normed and measured. And Jesus links the sanctification or the growth in godliness of his disciples with God's word. Now this connection is something that many people don't like. Jesus is saying here that we get sanctified, we get conformed more and more to the image of Christ through the Word. Because only the Word is truth. You don't grow in godliness by not reading your Bible. You may become a more social, a more nice person without the Bible, but if you don't read the Bible... If you don't ingest the Bible, you are cutting yourself off from the link that Christ has here made between your sanctification and the Word of God. To grow in godliness, you must consume Scripture. Not, I was out in a field amidst the flowers with the ukulele, and I was strumming and a bird flew, and I thought a thought. That is not a growth in godliness. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now that dovetails into our passage. Scripture is necessary for your growth in godliness. But it's also sufficient for everything you need to be a godly person. Our passage here in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All right, see that, see that verb in verse 17, equipped for every good work? Okay, in the Greek, it's like a, a double emphatic. And so I think it's better translated in either the King James or the NIV. Because just saying equipped for good, every good work, okay, it doesn't carry the oomph of the Greek, whereas the King James says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Or the NIV says that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, not just equipped. Okay, thoroughly equipped. The idea here is that the Word of God is not lacking anything you need to teach you not only the way of salvation, but the way of godliness. The Scriptures are sufficient in and of themselves. We don't need to add to it. And so this verse flies in the face of official Roman dogma, which I was just reading in their catechism yesterday, scriptures are not sufficient in themselves. You must have sacred tradition to fill in the gaps. Where else are you going to learn about the seven sacraments and purgatory and all that other stuff? Because it's not in the Bible, so you need our sacred tradition to tell you. No, the word of God is sufficient for you to be equipped for every good work. Every good work. Third, this verse highlights the finality of revelation. If God's word is such 
that from it you are able to be completely uh, prepared for every good work. If it is sufficient for all you need to grow in godliness, then that implies that we don't need something else to come along afterwards. Otherwise, it wouldn't be sufficient to accomplish the task. The fact that it is sufficient implies its finality. That's why in Scripture you have so many warnings about adding to or subtracting from God's Word. That's why you have in Scripture the word that the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, the the vessels through which revelation came. The foundation is laid only once. And the entire edifice then is built on top of that foundation. God's word is final. There's no authority higher. We're not looking for another revelation to come from an angel. So Joseph Smith, I'm so sorry, I don't know what you saw, but it wasn't more revelation. Finally, this verse is clear. I'm sorry, <laughs> Scripture is clear. The fact that God's Word repeatedly commands us to read it, to study it, to proclaim it, to meditate on it, to reflect on it, to obey it, all that stuff. The fact that it repeatedly does this implies that God's Word is clear enough for us to do so. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that God has not revealed everything. Did you know that not every secret of the universe has been revealed in Scripture? There are some things that God doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us what was God doing before creation. You know what? We don't know. But Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the secret things belong to God. But the things that have been revealed have been revealed so that we and our descendants can obey him. Okay, so by the clarity of Scripture, we mean that the things that God expects of us for faith and obedience are clearly set forth in Scripture so that an ordinary person can read and understand them, and in the language of our confession of faith, through the use of ordinary means. And the ordinary means would refer to the act of study. There's no magisterium that gets granted secret mystical arcane knowledge. Did you know that when I got ordained, I wasn't given a a magic decoder ring? I didn't get some amulet that allows me to have access to the arcane mysteries of, of, of God's mind? No, I learned God's word the same way you do. And that is, I spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of energy buying books writing papers, taking tests, studying. Now, you may say, well, Ben, I don't buy that, the whole scripture is clear thing. I mean, there's a lot of passages that don't make sense. Well, sure, God appoints teachers, okay? God appoints teachers so we can know God's word better. And even Peter himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter 3.15, admits that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. So yeah, if you open up to Revelation and start looking at, you know, 
the woman and the dragon. Wow, I just opened up to Revelation. The woman and the dragon or, or, you know, an angel and a scroll. What does that mean? Well, yeah, that's harder to understand. But open up to Matthew 5. Open up to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who doesn't understand that? Everyone can understand that. God's word is meant to be taught, meant to be understood, meant to be lived and applied, meant to be cherished and loved, which means that God has spoken in normal human words with normal human concepts following the rules of normal human language so that we can understand it enough to be benefited by it. And so, because Scripture is God-breathed, it comes out from God. And it carries His truth. It carries His oath. It carries His promise. You and I can have complete confidence in it as our authority. He didn't, he didn't leave you without something you need. You're not missing out on some special gift that you need to grow. He's given you his authoritative word that is sufficient for your salvation, sufficient for your growth and godliness. It's necessary. If you don't ingest it, you won't grow. It's final, and it's clear. Brothers and sisters, as a Bible-believing church, as an evangelical church, as a Protestant church, as a Reformed church, we believe that this, God's Word, is our authority. And everything I say, and every constitutional document we have, sits in subordination to this. Because this is the only thing that endures forever. Amen.